God give us Christian homes. The importance of the home in our world today cannot be overestimated. We live in a world where our homes are under assault by society, by people from various segments of it, and you and I need to make sure that our homes are what they ought to be or else society is headed for ruin. What your children learn in the home will affect whether or not our schools will be conducted the way they should be conducted. It will affect whether or not our communities have people who are robbers and thieves, who are cheats and liars, or else our homes will be able to impact society for good. The home has a great impact on the church as well. Many churches are struggling now because little children are not being reared in the Lord. The next generation is suffering because society's ills. And so we ask, God give us Christian homes. And God gave us the Bible as a marvelous book. The marvel of the Bible is the fact that it teaches us so much by principles We can read about what God wants in the home, how he designed the home, how God expects the home to grow and progress throughout life. But it also teaches us by examples, both good and bad. We can see those great men and women of God who took the principles provided to them by God and lived them out in their lives. Likewise, we can see those evil people who rejected God's principles and allowed themselves to have heartache and sadness and a future of difficulty. We're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come written for our admonition. When you and I study about the lives of these great people of the Bible, we recognize that there is something there for us to learn. Romans 15 and verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, beforehand, were written for our learning. Written for our learning. Well, this morning in our series of lessons on God Give Us Christian Homes, we're going to explore the gems from Genesis. We're going to take that book and just simply try to take some principles, some examples from it that will provide for us some direction about having Christian homes. We're going to look, first of all, at the divine arrangement. We'll look, first of all, at chapters 1 and 2 and see how God began with man. Number two, we will talk about the decisive father. We'll explore Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19 where God speaks of Abraham. And then we will talk about the difficulty with children. If you want a book of the Bible that shows how much difficulty you can have with children, just study the book of Genesis. It has a lot to say on the subject. Let's take our Bibles, let's study together, let's focus our minds on this topic. The divine arrangement. 
If I want to know what God wanted from this world, all I have to do is to go to the book of Genesis to those first two or three chapters there where we see God's creative act in this world. When you get to chapter 1 and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the picture given to us of the creation of man. When you move to chapter 2, it's almost as if Moses is given the broad picture of chapter 1 and then the focusing in in chapter 2 beginning with verse 18. I'm not going to read this. We looked at this briefly last week as we started our lesson on this topic. But I will point out to you that when God created man, there was not a helper comparable to him. All the animals were brought before Adam to see what he would call them. He named them. But there could not be found for Adam a helper like him, comparable to him who helped him accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. And so God took from Adam a rib, and what he did, he made into a woman, verse 22. And then what he did, he brought the woman to the man. He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, if I come to the New Testament, and I'm in Matthew chapter 19, And there's a question been raised by the critics of Jesus about the home and about divorce. And before Jesus addresses anything about divorce, he says in Matthew 19 verses 4 and 5, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? Jesus was very plain about God's divine arrangement of the creation of man. And he says, what I expect you to do is to go back and read. That's exactly what he expects us to do as well. And what we learn there is is that man has a spiritual nature. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a uniqueness to the human population that does not exist in any of the rest of the creation. We are made in the image of God. We reflect God's glory. We are able to make moral decisions, and those moral decisions count for something. Both are in the image of God. What that entails now is is that the man and the woman stand equally before God with regards to their spiritual nature. 
The man was made in the image of God. The woman was made in the image of God. And that's the reason why when Paul writes the Galatians, he says to them, particularly in verse 28, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That means that the soul of every woman and the soul of every man is exactly the same in the sight of God. When Peter was describing the home in 1 Peter chapter 3, he talked about, first of all, the wife in verses 1 through 6. He gets to verse 7 and he says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together. Heirs together. The American standard says joint heirs. Both of us, the man and the woman, stand before God equally as having a spiritual nature. But God also talks about the physical nature of man. He made them male and female. Our society today is struggling and it's almost nonsensical to describe whether or not a person has a gender as if somehow the doctors decide when a baby's born if it's a boy or a girl. There's actually a thing called definition. And uh, God made man male and he made woman female and he said those are the two that are to be joined together and that's very plain, that's very clear. The gender roles were assigned based on the events of creation. But there's something else that was assigned. And that is the role that each would play within the family. This is God's divine arrangement. We simply respect it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 8 and 9, For man is not from the woman, but woman from the man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And you say, well, what does that have to do with it? What that has to do with it is God says, I want the man to be the head. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is about. In the home. It's just like, for instance, in our homes, when you have children, you may have two children, you may have three children, you may have seven or more and what you have is a firstborn. And generally that firstborn child bears a greater sense of responsibility and to some degree even role of responsibility of authority. You watch out for your brothers. You watch out for your sisters. And we recognize that that was because of the priority. Paul is going to come on and reaffirm that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, he said, Let the woman be in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What we learn from Paul is, is that there was a priority of who was created first, and that was the part of God's design or arrangement. Are both equal before God? Absolutely. 
Do both have the same roles before God? They do not. And so God created the home. And this addresses much of the confusion about the roles of men and women before God and in the home. And I know our society doesn't say that this is the way it ought to be, but that's the way God said it ought to be. And if God said it, then I must respect it and do what it says. Now, if you'll go with me to chapter 18, we're going to look at verse 19. It's not a very long verse, but the power within it is extremely important when it talks about the role of Abraham as a father. Brother Ethan read it for us just a few moments ago. I want to reread it again. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now Abraham is clearly in the Bible revealed to us as the father of the faithful. If you're looking for someone as an example of a faithful father, Abraham is it. Not only is a good father in raising Isaac, but a good man who was the progenitor of a group of people who are going to be faithful to God. Listen to Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Therefore know that, the only, that only those who are of the faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. What he's trying to tell us is that Abraham is not only the father of the Jewish people, but Abraham is the father of Gentile believers because he's the father of the faithful. But notice now, going back to verse 19 of Genesis 18, let's take that phrase by phrase and see what it says about this great decisive father. He may command his children. You know, a real good, decisive father is not one who says, well, I don't know. Maybe we ought to do this. Maybe we ought to. No, that's not Abraham. He commanded his children. That's giving orders. You go back to Genesis 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not freely eat. For the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. God commanded. Do you think he expected Adam and Eve to obey that command? Absolutely he did. He built in consequences. The consequences are you will surely die. Chapter 3, verse 17, Then Adam said, he, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, notice, he listened to somebody else rather than listening to God. Abraham commanded his children. His children listened to him. When you get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is given the qualifications for those who would serve as overseers, that is those who would serve as shepherds of his flock, 
He said, one who rules his own house well. Now, do you notice that key word there, rules? His own house well. Having his children in submission with all reverence. His children respect him. They honor him. They obey him because of the confidence they have in him. Abraham, as a respected, decisive father, was one that Isaac could look to and say, I trust my father. He does the right thing. He's got my respect. I'm going to do what he says for me to do. But he commanded his children and his household after him. Abraham did not say, do as I say and not as I do. He showed them how to live by the things that he did. The writer of the book of Hebrews captures this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 and verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he obeyed, when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive for an inheritance and went out not knowing where he was going. You know what kind of life that Abraham lived before Isaac He's a man who would do whatever God told him to do. In fact, when God told him to go to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice Isaac, Abraham drew back his hand to take the life of Isaac. Isaac knew how much Abraham respected God and how he would be obedient. He commanded his children in his house him that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. His commands are based upon God's ways. It's just like Joshua 24, verse 15, the latter phrase in that verse, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You want to be a decisive father? Men in this house, men in this auditorium, why not step up and be the head of your house and say to your family this afternoon, we're going to be at church today. We're going to come this morning. We're going to come tonight, and we're going to come on Wednesday night. That's going to be the practice of my family. I'm going to step up and lead my family in a righteous way. That's what God expects out of you. Now, here's the reason why. That the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had spoken to him. God had plans for Abraham's family. The plans that he had was to bless the whole world through his seed. You read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham, that is in your seed. That's going to be the coming of Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Can God use your family? Absolutely he can. But for him to do it successfully, you've got to cooperate by being a good, decisive father. We need more Abraham's that will lead their families in truth. Now to the tough part. Difficulty with children. How many families struggle with children? All of them. 
And yet, sometimes the things that we struggle with could be prevented, at least to some degree. And if you want to study a book of the Bible which reflects a lot of difficulty, just study the book of Genesis. We're going to take some examples that I think each of us can recognize and identify with and say, that's absolutely right. We're going to begin with the first family. We're going to begin with the first children. We're going to begin with Cain and Abel. And if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to learn in verses 1 through 13 a little bit about these two young men. We're not going to read it all. We're just going to notice a few details here. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived, bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. We're going to notice also that Abel is going to bring of his flock. Now what happened was, as you have two children, they chose different paths in life. If you have two children, four children, eight children, or so forth, you will find that many of them will have different interests in life. Some may want to be a farmer. Some may want to be a doctor. Some may want to be something else. There's choices in life, and there's, there's uniqueness to the children. But there's also sometimes a different spiritual temperament within them. Some are more interested in spiritual things and some less. What you find is that the problems that developed in the family were spiritual problems. If you'll notice with me, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts that though he is being dead, still speaks. The Bible says by what Abel did that he was a righteous man. Why? Because he acted by faith. Did what God told him to do. We learn from 1 John 3, 12, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Now here's the question. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. His works were evil. Abel's works were righteous. It wasn't the fact that Cain chose to be a farmer. That's an honorable position. Many have chosen that. But what happened was he was a man who was evil. He was a man who had no problem killing his brother became the first murderer. There's consequences to sinful choices, and it affects the family. It really affects everybody. When you continue on in verses 7 through 14, we learn of the consequences that God placed upon Cain. And what's interesting, if you tell, notice verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at your door, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Cain, you have choices. 
You don't have to give in to these choices. But he did. And the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. And you get to verse 14. And after God placed the punishment upon him, he said, surely you have driven me out this, or verse 13, I'm sorry. My punishment is greater than I can bear. I don't like the the seriousness of the punishment. I'm going to be banished from the family? Yes. Cain, there are consequences to making evil choices. And look how it's going to affect your life. I've got to move on quickly. Go to chapter 25 and you learn of the two sons of Isaac. Jacob and Esau. In verses 27 through 34, we learn a little bit about these young men. It says, so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. You see again, uh, two young men who chose different paths in life. And it wasn't as if one of the paths was better than the other. But what you do see is conflict that's going to come from parental partiality. Where one parent says, I love this child. And another parent says, I love this child. And do you not see the conflict that is brewing that it's going to happen within that family. Well, why was there the partiality? Because Isaac liked the game that Esau brought. He liked the food. It's an obvious fact that when parents have children, usually one of the children is going to be more like daddy and one's going to be more like mama. But this partiality boiled over to these sons to where... There was a competition between them. And what happened, just like with Cain, Esau chose a bad path. We learn in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward he wanted to inherit the blessing. He was rejected... For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Ah, here is Esau. He doesn't respect his birthright. He treats it as something unimportant in youth, but later he wants it. There's a good reason why he compared that to a fornicator. A lot of young people get involved in fornication. It appears to be something fun, something interesting. And yet the consequences of those choices can end up following you for the rest of your life. Especially when children are conceived. He wanted to change things. He wanted it badly. But you make decisions that are bad and those consequences will follow you. Where did all of this start? With the partiality of the parents. They should have known better. But you see, Jacob perpetuated that. 
You get to chapter 37 and you will find that Jacob, in having 12 sons of the 11th son, it says, now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now here's what happened. The partiality, the parental partiality that started with Isaac continued through Jacob. When's it going to stop? What parent is going to say, well, my brother and my sister and myself were treated differently by our parents, and so I guess I'm going to have my favorite child, and I'll, I'll treat one differently. Is it going to stop with your generation, or are you going to just let it keep going on and on and on and let the next generation learn from what you did and the next generation from that? And let me tell you what can happen. You go to the book of Obadiah. Generations, hundreds of years later, here's the great, 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 great grandchildren of Jacob and Esau. The Edomites are living nearby the children of Israel. And what's happening? Obadiah says, for the violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever in the day that you stood on the other side. In the day that strangers carried captive his forces. When foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for them, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. You see what's happening is there becomes a perpetual hatred that develops year after year. And that's why families can't get along anymore. Oh yes, the book of Genesis talks about difficulty. Now we can learn from the mistakes of others. In fact, we ought to learn from the mistakes of others. Solomon observes in Proverbs 21 and verse 11, when a scoffer is punished... The simple is made wise. If you don't understand that, I'll tell you exactly how it is. You're in the second grade, and you decide one day you want to be a smart aleck, and you want to smart off to the teacher. And the teacher says something, and you pop out that little smart aleck remark, and the teacher carries you aside and then carries you in front of the class and says, I want to show you what happens to little smart alecks. And you're spanked in front of the whole car, uh, not car, the whole classroom. Do you know what happens to the simple? Everybody else learns a lesson. When you and I study the book of Genesis, if we're at least a little bit smart, we ought to say, there's things that are right there, there's things that are wrong there. I want to do what Abraham did. I don't want to do what these other guys did. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. You're either the simple one and you learn from the mistakes of others, or you're wise and you learn and you don't make the mistakes yourself. 
Now, even the best of parents will make mistakes. You ask any parent in this room, have you done it all right? No. I made more than my fair share of mistakes. But it's foolish to fail to try to prevent the mistakes that you know that are there. Mamas and daddies, the future of your children depend upon whether or not you are faithful to the Lord today. In fact, you cannot lead your family successfully unless you are faithful to God. Some of us need to step back and say, okay, I get the point. Okay, we get the point. Now let's do something about it. Let's make a decision in our family that we're going to do the right thing. And we're going to be faithful. And if you're not a Christian, here's the first step. When we sing the invitation song, it's time for you to step out and say, it's time for me to become a Christian. It's time for me to be faithful. It's time for me to lead my family. We'll baptize you into Christ because you believe, you repent, you're confessing that faith and being baptized. If you're a Christian and you know that you look at your family and you say, I've not done the right thing. We're going to sing the song, God is Calling the Prodigal. If you need to come, come while we're together we stand and sing.